Soren Kierkegaard is the name of a well-known Danish philosopher. And he tells this parable called The King and the Maiden. And the way the story goes is there's this great king who's got wealth and royalty and power, and he falls in love with this poor peasant maiden girl. She has won her his heart, but she doesn't know it, and so now he begins to think about how he's going to woo her and win her. And so he comes up with a series of plans about how he's going to go about this. His first thought is that he'll just go to the village, go to her door, and just profess his love. He'll dress up in his finest robes, put on his ring, his crown, hold his scepter. He'll ride the chariot to his village with all the pomp and ceremony of the palace. He'll knock on her door, and, and she'll see the king. And, and who could say no to the king? And, and as he thought about it, that exactly was the problem. Who could say no to the king? So how was he ever going to know if she truly loved him or if she just fell in love with the power, the prestige, the position of royalty? And so then he thought he'll come at it a different way. What he'll do is he'll go to her door, except this time he'll go under the disguise of poverty, a peasant like her. So he'll tuck in his robes for a few hours and he'll pretend to be a peasant. He'll knock on the door and he'll work at wooing and winning her. But then he thinks that eventually the charade, the disguise is going to be up and she'll know who he is and no good relationship starts in deception, so that won't work either. So then he thinks maybe he'll elevate her to his status. Through backdoor channels, he'll bless her family with wealth and power and prestige so that she becomes nobility, and then they run in the same circles, and then he'll meet her and court her and woo her and win her. But then he's dreaded by the thought of, what if she thinks that he wouldn't have loved her as a peasant but needed her to become like him, when in reality he loved her just as she was? And so then he realizes what he must do, what no king would do, which is the only way he can really do this is for him to take off the crown, put aside the rings, give up the scepter, walk away from the throne, and not just for a disguise, but really be as she is. Become a peasant like her, walk her streets, move into her neighborhood, take a job, meet her, court her, win her, and love her. Kierkegaard writes the parable when he's thinking of the awe, the wonder of the incarnation. The idea of this king so distant from a people that he can't just elevate them to him, nor can he just pretend to come to them, but he must step off the throne, become one of them, live among them, and win them to himself. Right? That's, that's the message of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, verse 14, became flesh and moved into the neighborhood and dwelt among us, became one of us to win us. The, the king in pursuit. That's the, that's the crux of the celebration of Christmas, is the king has wrapped himself in flesh and come into our space to pursue us, to win us, to himself. That's everything we're singing, right? E even the songs we sing. We sang, O Holy Night. What's the line in there? The King of Kings lays in lowly manger. Before your King, lowly bend. Or joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Right? Every song in this season is the idea of a King born among us. 
So our question is, if Jesus is a king, what does that mean? And what kind of king is he? If Jesus is king, what does that mean? And what kind of king is he? And for our answer today, we're going to John chapter 18 and a conversation that Jesus has with Pilate. Now I know John 18 is way late in the story and it's, it's a far distance from the early chapters of the gospel that tell us the story of the birth of the king. But in John 18, at the end of his life, Jesus is going to refer back to the beginning of his life and speak to why he came. Listen to these words in John 18 and 37, Pilate's going to say to him, so you are a king, and Jesus answered, you are right in saying that I'm a king, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Jesus says, this is the reason I came, this is the reason I was born into the world, to show that I'm a king. Jesus' kingship is tightly woven into and tied into Christmas and his birth. And so, again, our question is, if Jesus is a king, what kind of king is he? Let me pray, and then we'll listen in on the conversation that Jesus has with Pilate and, and learn that together. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we ask for your help in this time. We ask that we would come to know Jesus better, and in knowing him and knowing the kind of king he is, that you would begin to birth in our hearts worship for him, faith in him, repentance to him, glory given to him, service for him. We pray that you would wrap us around the cause of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ as we begin to consider what kind of king he is. My deep prayer is that you would again climb into the throne of our hearts and rule and reign over all of your people gathered here today. Show us that Jesus is a very good king and give us the joy of being his subjects. This is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me get you caught up where we are in John 18 before we get to verse 28. We're just sort of setting the table before we get ready to sit down and eat. By this time, we've already last week listened as Jesus has prayed the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's already cried out to his father in anguish. He's already resigned and resolved to take the cup of God's wrath, the bitter cup that the father had prepared for him. He's ready to go. And so when the scene ends, he's resolved in his heart. He's ready to go. And now the night sky is lit up with torchlights as Judas has brought the soldiers to arrest Jesus. So Judas betrays him. The soldiers arrest him. And now Jesus is bound and brought before the chief priests, the leaders, the religious rulers of the day. As we've been going throughout this series, you've seen lots of run-ins between Jesus and the religious leaders. And now, I mean, they've had enough. For a bunch of chapters throughout John's Gospel, they're sort of like lions in the Discovery Channel. We're just waiting behind the bushes, lying low, waiting to spring into action, to pounce on him and to shred him to pieces. They now have their hour. This is what they've been waiting for, and they now have him. He's brought before them, bound. And what they do now is they throw together this trial to judge him. It's not fair to even really call it a trial, because you're going to see the whole thing is just a joke. It's just a, a sham. It's like a kangaroo court. 
There's no real injust justice worked for here. Jesus is guilty in their minds before the trial even starts. He, he's done even before the case begins. As you go through it, you begin to see they want him dead. These trials just a means to get to that end. So if you read through the Gospels, you find that in these trials, they bring different men to accuse Jesus. And one guy will bring his accusation, and the very next guy will contradict what the first guy said. And so everybody who's listening goes, none of this makes sense. You guys are just making up stuff as you go. They're sort of tripping over themselves, trying to get something to stick, because none of the charges are falling rightly on Jesus. And so in the midst of this chaos, seeing that the trial is going nowhere, Caiaphas, the chief priest, stands up, and he asks Jesus one question. He says... Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus says, I am. And moreover, you will see the Son of Man in the clouds, and you will see him in power and glory. And by then they've heard enough. Caiaphas rips his robes, the crowd mentality, mob mentality sets in, and they all shout, that's enough, we've heard more than we need to, he's blasphemed, let's kill him. So their hour has come. They're ready now to put him to death. There's just one small problem. They're ready to put him to death, but they can't. They don't have the power. right? Remember at this time, Israel is occupied by Rome. So Rome is in town. Rome is boss. And they've taken from Israel the power of capital punishment. If they had it their way, they would have just taken Jesus outside and pelted him with stones and stoned him to death. That's what you do with all the blasphemers. But they can't. They don't have the power to put someone to death. And so what they need is they're going to need Rome to do this for him. They want Jesus dead, but they need Rome to do it for them. And so they're going to sort of partner with the dreaded hated Roman Empire because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they're going to partner with Rome to get Jesus. As they do that, they run into a second problem, which is their issue with Jesus is a, a theological one, a spiritual one. Their beef with Jesus is that Jesus is claiming to be God. Well, what's Rome going to care that some Jew from Nazareth is blaspheming the desert god Yahweh. They're not going to care. The case is going to be thrown out. It's going to be tossed out. And so the, the Jewish chief priests realize if they don't play their cards right, Jesus is going to get slapped on the wrist rather than what they want, which is nails through the wrist. They want him dead. And so what they've got to do is they've got to get creative. They've got to sort of bend, slant, nuance, spin these charges in a way that Rome will pay attention and so what they do is they paint it over in a political light. Instead of saying he's claiming to be God, they start talking about, well, he says he's the king of the Jews. And if he's the king of the Jews, who's he a threat to? Rome. Caesar's the king of the Jews. And if this man claims to be king, he's a threat to Rome and to Caesar and to Caesar's throne. That will get Rome's attention. And so with those charges, they bring him to a man named Pilate the governor of Rome at the time. Caesar's in Rome. His, you know, apprentice is in town. Pilate rules. And so they brought, bind Jesus. They bring him to him. We pick it up at verse 33 of chapter 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? There's our word, king. 
Pilate wants to know, we want to know, is he king? And if so, what kind of king is he? Right? Are you the king of the Jews? It's a, it's a loaded question. So Jesus can't just give a simple yes or no. Because what is Pilate really asking? If Pilate is asking, are you some kind of political guy who's trying to be king of the Jews and rule over this province, then the answer is no. But if the question is, who are you? Are you some kind of king? What is your identity? Are, are you some kind of king over these people? Then the answer is very much yes. So, so Jesus can't give a simple yes or no. So this is how he answers. Verse 34. Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Jesus asked, listen, Pilate, what are you asking? It's very interesting because Jesus is on trial, and yet he's the one doing the questioning. It's like they switch roles, and Pilate is now on trial before Jesus. Jesus switches it on him and asks, what are you asking? Are you just parroting what someone else has said about me? Is your interest, is your concern in me just an echo that you heard from someone else? Or is there something in you that really wants to know who I am and, and what my nature and identity is and what that means for you? Pilate, are you asking a real question or are you just asking what someone else said? Pilate's almost annoyed by the question. And, and so Pilate responds, am I a Jew? Your chief priests and rulers brought you to me. What have you done? So Pilate says, listen, why would I care what some Jewish peasant from Nazareth thinks he is or isn't? I'm just doing my job. Your people brought you to me. So what is it that you've done that has them so riled up? And Jesus answers. And when he does, we start learning the kind of king that he is. Verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You are right in saying that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? So the first thing we learn about this king, the first thing we learn about the kind of king Jesus is, is that Jesus is a foreign king. He's a foreign king of a foreign kingdom. There, throughout Jesus' life, is something strange, something unfamiliar, something out of place about Jesus. Though he's flesh like us, he never really fits in. There's this otherness, there's this foreignness to Jesus. He is an alien king, a foreign king of a foreign kingdom, right? He, he's, he doesn't fit in. He, he's out of place. It's like if you drop me in the middle of Beijing, I would stand out. Or another way of saying it is, Jesus is sort of like a, like a fob, right? Like that's the term we lovingly call immigrants who come over here, who, who look like everyone else, but no matter how you dress them up, Everybody can tell that they're a fog, right? They, they just, they speak with a little bit of an accent. They, they look different. You can just pick them out from a crowd. Jesus is very much like that. He just sort of stands out a bit. He's an alien king of an alien kingdom. That's what he says. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews, 
but my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus says, listen, if I were a king like the rest of the kingdoms of this world, I would have gathered servants to myself and they would have fought so that the Jews wouldn't have gotten me. But Jesus' kingdom works very different than the kingdoms of this world. Jesus is a very different kind of king, right? Whereas the kingdoms of this world fight for soil, this king fights to win hearts. And whereas the kingdoms of this world advance and conquer through violence and force, this king and his kingdom advances and conquers through love. He's a very different kind of king. His kingdom isn't tied to geopolitical lines, so that he is very much king of the Jews, but also king of the Romans, and king of the Greeks, and king of the Japanese, and king of the Chinese, and king of the Indians, and king of the Americans. His rule and reign extends far beyond these kinds of lines, because he's not after soil, he wins hearts from every planet, every place on the planet. His, his kingdom seems to spread across the globe. It's a multinational, international, global kingdom. And his citizens, the citizens of this king, find their primary allegiance to a kingdom of a different world. Those who call themselves Christians don't primarily find their allegiance to the place of their birth, but primarily to the place of their new birth. Right? We are not primarily Americans or Indians or Asians or Japanese or any of it. We are primarily citizens of a very different kingdom. Right? Jesus stands out to them. He's, he's different. He's alien. There's something foreign about him, and there's something very foreign about his citizens. If we're Christians, there ought to be something very foreign about us, something very different about us. And Christians sometimes stand out for all the stupid reasons, but for good ones, when we look like our king. He is a very foreign king of a very foreign kingdom. There's a, a foreignness about Jesus. But not only is Jesus an alien king, as the text goes on, we find out he's also king of kings. Not only is Jesus a foreign king of a foreign kingdom whose kingdom extends over the whole globe, citizens from every place, but this king is also king of kings. Listen to what he says. Verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You are right in saying that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Then listen to what he says. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Jesus is making here an incredibly exclusive claim as to who he is. He's saying, I've come to show that I'm a king, to bear witness to the truth. And then he goes on to have the audacity to say, and everyone who is of truth comes to me, listens to my voice. The implication being that if someone does not come to Christ, he is outside of truth. That Jesus has the market cornered when it comes to truth. That there is no ultimate truth outside of Jesus. Jesus is making a very exclusive claim. He's saying, if, if a person is of truth, they come to me. And if they don't come to me, at best they bought into a lie or a half-truth. 
Jesus is setting himself above every other truth claim, every competing philosophy, every other religion, every other worldview, and he's saying, if you come to truth, you come exclusively to me. He's come not just to bring a truth, but the truth, and he is the primary witness to that truth. In our day, we need to hear when Jesus says this, that means there is truth. Right? There is truth. Fifty years ago, you wouldn't have had to say that. Everybody knows that. But not so in our day. In our day, the popular slogan is what Pilate asks in this question. Pilate sort of scoffs and says, what is truth? And he doesn't wait around to hear the answer. He just is sort of cynical. But that question has become the slogan of our day. What is truth? Like the popular idea of our day is, it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. It may work for you, it doesn't work for me. And everything we come against, whether it's sexuality or marriage or faith or religion or who is God, all of it is, well, that may be true for you, it's not true for me. I, I do these things called doubt nights at Starbucks. Every Wednesday, the major thing I'm constantly discussing, coming up against, is this idea that, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. And Jesus is saying, listen, there is truth. And not only that, I am the key witness. Everyone who is of truth comes to me. So Jesus is king of every other truth claim. King of all kings. King of every philosophy. King of every worldview. King of every competing claim. And his subjects find him to be the sovereign ruling truth of everything in their lives. So Jesus is an alien king, but not only that, he is king of kings. But you'll see something else. This king is also a very humble king. He is an alien king of an alien kingdom. The kingdom rules over the whole globe, citizens from every place on earth. He is king of kings, king over every truth claim. He's also a very humble king. In verses 38 to 40, as you keep going in chapter 18, you, you find that Pilate dismisses Jesus. He goes back out to the Jews and he says, listen, I find no fault in him. The Jews say, well, we want to kill him. And so Pilate ends up going back. 19.1, we'll pick it up there. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Okay. If everything we've said so far is true, if Jesus is an alien king, if he really is king of all kings, if he is more powerful, more true than anything else, how do you reconcile that with everything we just saw? How do you reconcile the most powerful person, the king of kings, the king over all the earth, going through what you see here, right? Servants in billions of places, yet this king is arrested, 
by some soldiers, brought on trial before the chief priests. He's slapped in the face for answering back. He's on trial, not before Caesar, you know, the ruler of all the known world at the time. He's on trial before some local city governor. So much so that this local city governor, Pilate, has the power of whether this Jesus will live or die. In 19.1, you see that some soldiers take him and they flog him. They fashion a crown of thorns around his head and press it down till blood begins to flow. And they strike him in the face. And they put a purple robe around him. And they kneel down saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they rise up and strike him in the head again. And then, once they've beaten him to a, a good bloody pulp, they parade him out in front of the people. And Pilate says, Behold the man. Here is the King of the Jews. I mean, come on, he's pitiful and pathetic. And then the people scream, We want to kill him crucify him. Okay, if Jesus is king of kings, how do you reconcile with that, with all of this? And so either he's not who he says he is, or it's something else. I, I was reminded of the story of the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? And Christians love those stories because its central figure is this lion named Aslan. He's the creator of this place called Narnia. He rules over all of it. And in that story, there's this one boy named Edmund who transgresses the deep magic, the deep laws, and he should be killed. And then there's this scene where the lion, who rules all things, takes his place. Let me read you how that passage goes. It says, Bind him, I say, said the white witch. And the dwarves made a dart at him and streaked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. Then others rushed in to help them, and they rolled the huge lion on his back and tied all four of his paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though, had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise. Even when the enemy straining and tugging, pulling the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh, they began to drag him toward the stone table. Muzzle him, said the white witch. And even now, as they worked about his face, putting on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws would have cost two or three of them their hands, but he never moved. Right? That, the, the scene grips us because here's this powerful lion. I mean, one slap from his claw, his, his paw, or one bite from his mouth, and, and all these enemies would have been gone. But for the sake of Edmund, he lets them have their day. Pilate is playing a big game of power, and the soldiers are slapping them, him in the face, and the crowds are screaming with their power, we want to kill him, and he doesn't do a thing. This is a very humble king. This is the gospel. The gospel is, you have a king whom you rebelled against, and for your treason you should be cut down, and yet he is cut down for you. An alien king, king of kings. And yet in the midst of all this, he doesn't make a move. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he is silent. In Kierkegaard's parable, for the king to win the maiden, he has to become humble. He, he has to give it all up, take on the position of a peasant to win her. 
So the King of Kings is humbled even unto death, Philippians 2 says, so that he might pursue a people like us. And the king ends his life in the same humility that he began his life. Right? He ends the same way he started. On the front of our Christmas cards, you don't have a picture of a baby in a palace, right? In a golden crib wrapped in silk. You have a picture of a baby in a, in a feeding trough for cows. Straw sticking out of the side. His first visitors, donkeys and sheep. He is a very humble king. An alien king whose kingdom reigns over all the earth. King of kings over every truth claim. Ruling everything in all creation. Yet a humble king who they slap him in the face and he does not make a sound. I want to show you one last thing about what kind of king Jesus is. He's a very different kind of king. And the last thing is, this king, even in his death, is in control. This king is sovereign and even till the last moment, in control. Listen to verse 9 of chapter 19. He entered his headquarters again, this is Pilate, and said to him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he deliver, who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Okay, have you noticed the demeanor of Pilate and Jesus throughout this scene, throughout this conversation? What, what's their demeanor? Remember what their roles are. Pilate is judge. Pilate is prosecutor. Pilate is power. Jesus is on trial for his life. He's the accused. He's the defendant. Yet how do they appear? How does Pilate appear throughout this conversation? John has this great way of showing this story where Pilate is seen sort of four or five times scurrying and scuttling back between Jesus and the Jews. Right? He's not seated like you'd expect the governor in the throne or on his judgment seat. He goes and talks to Jesus, and then he's convinced he's innocent. So then he goes and talks to the people, but the people won't let him. So then he runs back to Jesus, and, and on and on the scene goes, and this man of power is seen like an errand boy running between the two sides. He's completely out of control. And then the chapter tells us that he's even deathly afraid. His wife tells him, listen, I had a dream. Don't have anything to do with that man. And then when the priests say, you know, he actually claimed to be God, it says he was seized with fear. He doesn't look at all like he's in control. Five times in this, in this narrative, throughout the Gospels, he tries to weasel out of this whole thing with Jesus. When Jesus first comes, he says, listen, he's Galilean. Bring him to Herod. Herod tries all those cases. Herod sends him back, so that doesn't work. So then he goes back to the chief priest and says, Listen, Herod tried him, I tried him. We don't find him guilty, just let him go. That doesn't work. So then he tries this measure where he says, Listen, there's a custom where I could release someone. Let me release him. They scream for Barabbas. That doesn't work. So then he tries another half measure. He'll have him flogged. He figures there's this bloodthirst growing among the people and he'll let some blood flow. And if they beat him up a little bit, they'll be satisfied and they'll be done. That doesn't work. 
And so finally he's run out of options and in a show of great maturity, he grabs a bucket of water and he washes his hands. And he says, look, I don't have anything to do with this. Let it be on your heads. Pilate is the judge and yet he's completely out of control. Now, now what about Jesus? How does he appear? He appears honestly like a king sitting on a throne. Calm. Quiet. Completely courageous. Completely in control. In fact, so quiet that it drives Pilate insane. Remember verse 10. You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And then Jesus sort of drops the bomb on him and lets him in on a little secret. Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus says, listen, you think you're running the show here? You're not. I am. And my father and I had decided long ago what would happen in this place. And everything is happening just as we said it would. In fact, Pilate, let me tell you this. Your power to execute me, I gave that to you. The very seat that you're going to sit on to rule over me, I put you in that seat. You have no authority over, you, over me unless I didn't first give it to you. To the last moment, this king is completely in control. I mean, so much so, I'll give you one more. In 18 verse 31, Pilate had said to them, listen, you take him and you crucify him. Uh, you kill him. And the Jews say, we can't, we don't have the power. And then this is what it says. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The Jews, if they had it their way, throughout the whole Bible, you don't find them crucifying anyone. What's their way of capital punishment? They stone people to death. They stone Stephen in the book of Acts. But Jesus cannot die that way because he said he wouldn't. He said... I will be lifted up from the earth. And so even the fact that they have to go to Rome is all in fulfillment of exactly what Jesus would said would happen. Jesus will be crucified and killed by these people, but you make no mistake. He is not a pawn. He is not a victim. Rather, he is in control to the very last moment. Pilate is playing his part in the, in the script Jesus wrote. Jesus says in, Matthew, in John 10, looking ahead to the day of his death, he says, listen to me, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. And then he says, I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it back up. And three days after his death, the king takes his life back up. The return of the king. And he comes back to life. He is a sovereign king. He is an alien king, a foreign king. His subjects and citizens ought to look as foreign as he does. He is king of kings. King over every truth claim, every competing thought and worldview. He stands ruling over all of them. And yet with all that power and might, he's an incredibly humble king. In fact, giving the power to the man who's going to slap him in his face. 
And this king is sovereign and in control. So the only question left for us, if, if this is the kind of king he is, is, is he your king? Right? That's the only question left to answer. Is this sovereign? Is this humble? Is this foreign? Is this king of all kings king over you? King over every part of you? Don't think that the alternative is freedom. The alternative is slavery. You're going to be a slave to something. The question is, are you going to be a slave to Satan's sin, death, and hell? Or are you going to be a servant and subject to a king like this one? A king who would use his sovereign power rule to give his life so that you might be his. The humble king who pursues you for himself. Let's pray.